As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello and welcome to The Phil Hay Show. Dan and Michael from The Square Ball. Phil's here from The Athletic. Now then, chaps. Last one of the season. Game-wise, anyway. I was going to bring some incense and some pan pipes for this. I thought it might be, might be good for the mood. Uh, yes. The penultimate Phil Hay show, as well, we should say, we're moving it over to the square ball feed after a short break in the summer. We're going to do one more Phil Hay show here on the Athletic feed after the Spurs game. Wrap up what will be a glorious day of escape and fun and Premier League st- status assured, Phil? I've spoken to quite a lot of Leeds fans this week. I've not encountered a single <laughs> person who's even remotely said to me, <laughs> "No, could happen this weekend. I mean, it could happen, couldn't it? It could happen. It's, um, you know, it's possible. It's possible. But You're looking, uh, around, you're yeah, looking around the room. Well, well, I'm, no looking, I'm looking at Michael and I knew what the glance back would be, but even Daniel, yeah. even Daniel has Plymouth painted on his face. Can you remember when the, the National Lottery started in this country in 1994? I can. Yeah. And did you not feel in the run up to that you were absolutely certain that you'd buy a ticket and win it? Yes. Even though you knew the odds were 14 million to one? Yes. And then it got to that Saturday night, the first Saturday night when they did the draw and you went, Oh, I haven't won. Yeah, and in fact, I've only got I've got one number out of six. That's quite far off, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I remember my dad buying a ticket at the petrol station on the way home and looking at it and going, "Cool, like you know, this is you've, this seen, is you've what, seen Charlie in the chocolate factory, yeah, Willy really Wonka. This is what wins you six million quid." And then I don't think we got any numbers. And I remember sitting there thinking, "This is shit. Like, what's, <laughs> what's the point?" Um, yeah, um, is, is that the uh, the feeling towards the, the Premier the League? Metaphor, the metaphor for Sunday afternoon. I just can't see it, you know. I, I don't see where it's coming from. I think the, the even as a basic starting point, I, I don't have much faith in them to beat Tottenham. No, do you? No. No. Michael said this. Isn't it funny that how that shifted just based on the performance at West Ham? Because I mean, I did chuck you under the bus somewhat when we we conversed like off air. Yes. You decided to call it and said, "I think they're going to stay up." Now, and I know I'm chucking you under the bus again here. Yeah. But I don't think anyone saw that coming, did they? Like the 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 manner of collapse after building on... There was a bit of a platform at the end of the Man City game and then Newcastle, you thought, okay, fine, we've really, really battled in this one. And then they just they just went again, didn't they? I, I just had a feeling that the way the last two games were set up, and particularly because Leeds had, had had a pop against Newcastle, and I think if you fair about that game, it'd been a little bit unlucky not to come out of it with a win because of the, the penalty miss. And I know there was a lot more to the game than that, but it was a, it was a critical moment and it made a big difference. And... Looking at West Ham, looking at Tottenham, asking about how much was in either game for them, which was essentially nothing, I suppose, the exception at West Ham being 
the fact that it was probably Declan Rice's last home game for them. It seemed like an opportunity and it felt like an opportunity. And I actually think if you're objective about the West Ham game, it, it absolutely was. Because look at the first 20 minutes again, the fact that Leeds got themselves ahead, the fact that West Ham did look leggy, there was no intensity in the crowd. I think they were sort of asking themselves how much the players asking themselves how much they wanted to have to slog through a hard 90 minutes against the team who were scrapping for it. But that game shifted to a point where West Ham seemed to get it in their heads. They might as well just win it because it was there to be won and Leeds were fading and, and Leeds were, were going backwards. And I suppose that match is symptomatic or indicative of what's been going on this season. That Leeds just don't have it. They, they just are not good enough, even in circumstances like that to make the most of a situation where the game was set up to be won. The result they needed was there for the taking. If they had won that game, it really would be all on this at, on Sunday against Spurs. It, again, survival would be there to be had. But that's happened so many times this season. It's um, it's absolutely been on repeat. And I, I, had, I kind of felt deep down like they might win at West Ham. The game was set up for that to happen, but it hasn't. And here we are. It's funny though, you know, I was uh, just poking around on, on Twitter this morning and I saw somebody, and actually it was on Wacko, I beg your pardon, who messaged and said, uh, you know, I fully accepted our fate at the start of the week. And just as the weeks crept on, there's that tiny part you're going, what, what if? <laughs> That's, I've written a piece today we had to do. And they were, and they were resentful about it as well, I should yeah, say. Yeah. yeah, well, you kind of are because it's, a lot of it, it's kind of expended energy that you could just have, just have saved. I had to write a player of the year piece for Leeds this morning, which was... Well, I was going to say it was a challenge. It wasn't really, because it was quite obviously Rodrigo. And I was remembering the fact that last season, Leeds didn't even bother doing Player of the Year awards, which pretty much summed the, the entire campaign up. Rafinha. But, um, but yeah, no, it, it would have, had they awarded it to anybody, it would have gone to him without a doubt. I was saying that the... In fact, there was a piece earlier in the week. I, I was saying at the end of it, once you get to Sunday, there will be that little bit of your mind that starts to saturate your brain with optimism because that always happens, especially as the game starts to come and, and kickoff starts to come around. That temptation to tell yourself that anything's possible and it might just work out. But as I say, I haven't met anybody this week or spoken to anybody this week who, who genuinely thinks that, that that's going to happen. And I, I think that's realism based on a lot of what's gone on this season. And also the fact that unlike last year, when they went into the last game, they, they knew that if Burnley won against Newcastle, uh, that, that they'd be down Leeds. But there was only one team to get in front of. Actually, a draw would have been enough in certain circumstances. And on the day, a, a draw would have been enough too. And there was kind of realistic chance that Newcastle were going to win at Tuffmoor. This time round, Everton win, it's over. Leicester win, it's over. Leeds don't win, it's over. It's odds stacked massively against you. I mean, this is the ultimate got one in us, is this? And even I don't believe. <laughs> no, I, I knew that even you were not going to say that this week. It's no. not just us who need one, is it? Well, that's what I mean. The ultimate get, got one in us is, I mean, like the whole set of circumstances, the way that the football gods are going to deal with this one. I said it over on our show this week. Like, I absolutely know that we will go one up early at some point on Sunday just so we can get to the end of the game and say, at that point, at five o'clock, as you said, Michael, in, in the example, we were safe at five o'clock. And then it all went wrong again. <laughs> yeah, either that's going to happen or Spurs are just going to tip up, cruise to a nice comfortable win. Harry Kane will get himself beyond 30 goals and that'll be that. It will be actually a remarkable day if it happens. It'll be one of those days you, you never ever forget. It just feels like it's asking too much. I think it's good to go into it with no expectations or very, very definitely, low. Definitely, yeah. definitely. I think you have to. And it doesn't help either, does it, that Bamford 
We've seen Allardyce in a few years' time. Bamford, I think, will have little to no chance of playing given that it was a hamstring last weekend. They will, from what I'm told, attempt to patch up Rodrigo and his foot problem if they can to get him playing. But even that, it tells a story of what's been going on for the last two years. You know, a club in, in trouble with a bundle of really key players who are not available, not fit, not not really ready, perhaps shouldn't be playing. But who could, but who, they could are, have, they are. who could have foreseen that Pat Bamford wouldn't be fit though? Absolutely, yeah. Do you think this is the last we've seen of him? I feel, I, I feel like the, I, I almost feel like they're going to have to save him from himself or, or do the right thing with him because it's been a struggle for so long this for him that it's definitely affected the mood of the crowd towards him. Without a doubt, the injuries have affected his game, his ability to make an impact, and even just to look at West Ham in isolation, there was obviously the the threats made to him, the the abuse of him. Previously, it was totally out of order after the, the Newcastle game. But Allardyce had said in his press conference, you know, I've been speaking to him this week, what I've been saying to him is, what you need to do at West Ham is to go there, score a goal, ideally score the winning goal, make your point on the pitch. And what happens? Bamford limps off after half an hour and and I wouldn't say it doesn't make any impact. I, I thought, for what it's worth, Leeds were better with him on the pitch than they were without him. I, I thought he, he ran the channels pretty well um, and, and the, the flanks in the first 20 minutes. But yet again, what's happened is that he hasn't been able to get through the game. He hasn't been able to make the impression that he needs to be making. And I think, not just for him, I think for quite a few people, the, the need for a fresh start seems pretty apparent. I, I don't, it doesn't seem to me to be totally fair on him again next season to be saying, listen, we're, we're going to rely on you now, especially if you're down in the championship and you're trying to get promoted, even though he's done it there before and the score goals there before, to say, we're going to rely on you when for two years... That's just been too much to ask. I'd imagine his contract will be a barrier to a lot of people signing him because he's got three years left, I think, hasn't he, at the end of this season and about, what, 70, 80 grand a week, something like that? Well, all of the players or most of the players will incur pretty chunky wage cuts when they go down. It'll be kind of 50, 60%. So what they're earning now won't be what they're earning in the championship. You always have this when you get relegated and not even just when you get relegated, when you need to clear out your squad if you've had a poor season or whatever else. There are some people in the dressing room who are worth money, intrinsic value, which you will get for them. So guys like um, Willie Nonto, even Melier had a hard year, but I still think you, there's money to be to be made there. You can sell, you'll find takers for it. It's not an issue. There are always other players who you either want to move on or need to move on that are far more difficult to, to find buyers for. And the reason for that is that they know that you've become a bit of a distressed seller. They don't have to go to whatever price you're going to go to. I mean, if Leeds survived and if Leeds were in good nick as a Premier League club anybody coming in for Nonto to use him as an example you name your price and you stick to your price and and you don't get bullied with that but once you drop down into the championship clubs know that they can squeeze you to an extent some players will have release clauses which mean they can go for a certain value if a club bids that and often that value is below their their true market value I mean you remember that Phillips and Rafinha raised a sort of combined total of almost £100 million last summer if Leeds had been in the Championship, because of release clauses, it would have been more like £50 million. So you're you you know, you're halving your income there. Every club experiences this when they get relegated. There are some players who are very, very difficult to move on. And sometimes you have to take a financial hit or make financial allowances to make it happen. The fear is that you end up selling the players you want to keep to pay the players you can't get rid of, essentially. Yes, yeah, is a problem. And in a lot of circumstances... The players you want to keep, it's not really your prerogative to keep them anyway, regardless of whether they're they're under contract. I mean, take somebody like Robin Koch, for example. 
he's been a Germany international, I think still thinks of himself as a Germany international. I was saying in the Player of the Year piece, he's had an okay year, Cock, isn't he? I think if you were throwing grenades, he'd be one of the last to, to get it. But he is in a, still part of a defence, which has been a complete mess. 74, right the way 74 yes. goals, Phil. I was saying the, the team, highest in the division. They seem to have been trying Again. to secure charitable status this season, don't they? <laughs> but you could look at Robin Cock and say, we want to keep you. He's got 12 months to go, realistically. If there's a, a taker at a high level for him, or high-ish level, then that's probably the way it's going to go. It's going to be an incredibly busy summer. There's so much to do. I know I've been pilloried for my uh, stat that I pulled, which was down to Sporting Intel, Nick Harris, uh, correlated a point to a goal, roughly, in the Premier League. And it's still tracking, by the way. It's about a thousand and something. I, th- on. I thought you were going to go on about the other one. No. You know that one you made up at the start of I the season? I didn't make you, you <laughs> honestly, just because I've chucked you under the bus over the staying up thing. First, let's deal with this, the, the point of goal thing, which has been thrown back at me right across the season. Because it's wrong. It's because it's, it's, it's very obviously wrong. It's not. <laughs> if you actually, I actually did it this week. I totted up. Well, both. why then are us and Leicester in the bottom three having scored 49 and 47 goals? Allow me to finish saying what I'm saying, Michael. If I can point you at Nottingham Forest, who have scored 37 goals and have 37 points, uh, that suits my example. Okay. Uh, but what I was going to say was, actually, if you, if you tot up all the goals scored in the Premier League and all the points that have been achieved, actually still tracking. Yeah, oh. but you'd be able to track that against number of throw-ins across the season. So for every for every 10 throw-ins, you get a, you get a point. But what, I'm, what I was trying to say was, if you... If you actually, it's nonsense, shut up. If you, <laughs> don't want to hear it. If you actually look at... Keep when, going. I was say, <laughs> if you look at the variation within it, it maybe draws you towards some conclusions about where things have gone wrong. And I was going to say with Leeds, where Leeds are concerned, Leicester are the same as well. Leicester have scored 49 mm-hmm. goals and they've only got 31 points, but their defence is porous. And I know it's not exactly rocket science to turn around and say that a team at the bottom's defence is bad, but you can see that our attack's actually been relatively efficient for a team that's struggled and it's the defence that's let us down. Yeah, the, the extraordinary one in there is kind of um, Bournemouth. 37 goals scored, 70 goals conceded, 39 points and, and safe. And even above them, uh, Wolves have only scored 31 goals all season. Um, so not been in any way prolific. But Bournemouth, didn't Bournemouth lose by nine to Liverpool earlier this season as well? That's going to have skewed it quite a it, lot. It does. But the, the interesting thing about Bournemouth all the way through was that if you were lo- using underlying stats and yeah. the XG differential, then it suggested for a long time that they were going to go down. Because Are you the, with this the, as well? The results, were, the results seemed to be massively exceeding the quality of the, the performances. And I think among coaches who've done rather good jobs this season you'd have to say Gary O'Neill is one not least because he had the kind of I, I would have said rather thankless task of jumping into the post after it had looked like Bielsa might which is not you know not an easy easy act to follow or potential because we all looked at that and we went they're going to go down now yeah because you, you expected it to go the same way that Southampton did yeah absolutely I, I think because he always looked like he was about to be sick as well did Gary O'Neill every time you saw him on something he looked he looked massively stressed but he's done, done a very good job quite honestly if I was a manager in the Premier League I'd look like I was going to be sick permanently as well the other stat you were touching on there was the uh, the Opta stat not my stat the Opta stat that 96% of teams stay up having got 8 points in the opening 5 games wouldn't be, wouldn't be leads to buck the trend. Well, it? we are we are the four percenters. Well, if we are the four percenters, maybe that does give us a chance to stay up this weekend because right, it's about it's, we a, it's about the same odds for us to uh, to get out of this mess. Um, but again, you can look at that one and say it is only a statistic. However, look at what's happened since we got those eight points. We, we've got yeah. what another twenty three in a yeah. whole in a whole season. It's always hard knowing the point of the season where you can start to feel confident about it or relaxed, even if you have a good first month, which leads kind of did up to, to Brighton. It's nowhere near enough in itself. And actually even getting to Christmas and the turn of the year, there's so much football to come after that. And, and there's so much scope for a side to get themselves into trouble. 
that it probably is only kind of start of April where you can you can tell yourself that that yeah it's fine. I mean, oddly enough, in Bielsa's first season in the Premier League, I remember feeling mid January like they'd be fine. I think after they hammered West Brom that the Hawthorns thinking after ah, you know they'd be well clear of this, and and it was it was helped that season by the fact that some of the teams at the bottom three were an absolute mile adrift. I mean, obviously Southampton have gone down early this time around and, and are going to finish at this rate, you know, about 12 points uh, twelve points below 17th. But the fact that you still have three in the mix and Forrest would be in the mix as well to a degree had they not turned over Arsenal last weekend. You know, it's been, been much tighter this time. After that uh, West Brom game, we had played 16 games and we had 23 points. And we had Fulham, West Brom and Sheffield United on 11, 8 and 2 points respectively down in the relegation zone. So we were a good 10 points, 11, 12 points clear of it at that time. And now it's 37 games and, and 31 points. And the stat that's been going around a lot is where they were at halftime against Palace. The fact that they would have been moving on to, oh, sorry, um, before Palace equalised just before halftime, that had it held at 1-0 or had Leeds won that game, they would have moved on to 32. And then, what, seven or eight games on, they haven't even made it to 32 so far, I mean, it, it was a kind of odd weekend, that one, because the marketing department at Leeds were planning for the announcement of the Premier League's pre-season tournament in the US the, the following week. And Leeds was supposed to be part of that, was supposed to be going. Um, and even during Palace, you know, they were assuming that, uh, you know, 1-0, they're thinking, right, OK, well, this will be coming next week. This is something we have to prepare for and so on. Then there's the collapse. They lose 5-1. And literally the following day, the Premier League say, listen, we're not convinced you're staying up. We're not convinced you're going to be a Premier League club. So we're giving you a place to, to fill them. And it, it is honestly remarkable the way in which it, it has caved in from that point onwards. The Palace game, we've been asked loads and I, and I know we get loads of tweets about it. I know I've seen you get a lot. Did something happen at half-time against Palace that precipitated this collapse? Not that anybody's been able to give us a clear story about. No, it may well have done. I find it hard to imagine that that having conceded an equaliser like that just before half-time, there the wouldn't have been words. But nobody's given us a clear picture of if something did go on, what it was and, and what impact it, it had. And I still struggle to see how whatever it might have been, if, if indeed there was anything at all, would have affected them to the extent where the whole thing has just collapsed. I definitely saw the logic in replacing Gracia when they did. It was utterly desperate. And in no way were you sitting going, yeah, this will solve it. It was just a case of it's surely better to do nothing, uh, to do something than, than it is to do nothing. But I can't in all honesty say through these three games that I think Allardyce has made a massive difference either. And that's not criticism of him because I just don't think you have any scope. It really has gone from that point to, it, it, you know, and it's not it's not that Leeds have been a good team all season because they definitely haven't. But Gracia seemed to have got a little bit of control in that point. It seemed to have all calmed down slightly and they now look like a side that are just beyond the wit of anybody to click the fingers and and do enough with them to get them out of this looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime 
day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We touched last week on the need for leads to, to act swiftly in the wake of whatever happens on Sunday. Um, it's going to be a summer of big changes, you mentioned anyway, Phil. None more so than the ownership. And that this one is just... It's just, but I was going to say bubbling along in the background. It's not even bubbling along in the background. It's in the foreground, isn't it? Because Andrea I think Radra- it's, the, it's the the key issue. Yeah, yeah. Rad, uh, Radrazani, Sampdoria, and he's been filmed, photographed outside their training ground, doing the Harry Redknapp bit, leaning out of the car window, and all the rest of it. I mean, not not a good look for a club that's about to get relegated for the for the owner to be in Italy doing that, is it? A very strange image, isn't it? In the week where the club that you you do actually own in England are going down or, or look like they're about to go down. Sampdoria have been relegated from Serie A. They are in an incredible mess. Major debts, major problems, huge implications potentially from those debts as well. Radrazani from time to time has, has looked at clubs in Italy. He is said to have had a, a little look at Inter Milan, but I think I, I said on the last podcast, Inter Milan kind of worth the region of about a billion pounds. And I don't think that the people who are fielding offers for them can really see how it is that Radrazani would, would put that sort of bid together. But Sampdoria do fall more into his price range. And people will probably have seen the reports on Thursday about his old friends QSI getting involved, um, Qatari Sports Investment, of which he, he their chairman, Radrazani, is a, a close associate friend of. So the assumption here is that if Radrazani was to sell Leeds, they do Sampdoria, he moves on, that becomes his next project and everything you know, everything goes from there. As it is, and I'm checking on this fairly regularly, I still don't think there is an agreement in place about what's going to happen if Leeds go down, about whether the 49ers, 49ers Enterprises are definitely buying, what price they're buying at, how this is all going to shake down. But it absolutely has to be resolved one way or the other because the next five or six weeks, and if we're assuming that Leeds are relegated, the next five or six weeks will be unbelievably intense and busy. They're going to have to make a decision on a head coach. They're going to have to fill the void left by Victor Otter outgoing as director of football, whether that's via the appointment of another straight director of football um, or whether they diversify things a little bit with, as we said previously, head of recruitment, head of football operations, that, that sort of thing. Beyond that, you need to make sure that the head coach is aligned with the director of football. When it comes to changing the squad, you need to make sure that the squad works for both of them, you know, works for your recruitment people or your, your people who are running the football operations that they're happy with it, that it suits the head coach. You have to manage the offers that come in. You have to manage the offers you're trying to make. You have just basically everything to deal with, absolutely everything. And there was quite a big turnover last summer. Obviously, Rafinha left and Phillips left and there were signings coming in like um, Tyler Adams and uh, Mark Rocker, Christensen and, and so on. But, they still had the same director of football. They still had the same head coach. And actually, it was quite sort of calm and sedate up until the end of the window where it started to get fractious about the absence of a of a centre-forward. This is totally different. I mean, this is this feels like the whole shebang. You know, pretty much everything needing addressed. Can you imagine a scenario in which Rodrozani sticks around and 49ers take over? We spoke about him flipping maybe over into minority ownership, but... Is that going to work? I mean, in terms of how it looks, the appearance is not great, is it? And is there going to be a desire on the part of 49ers Enterprises 
to accommodate that? Is, is I think the bigger question as opposed to how it looks. I suppose if it gets full control, uh, sorry, full control, if it gets control for 49ers Enterprise, then it's one way of doing it. But I more and more get the sense that when this is done, um, or if it is done, it has to be done at a price that 49ers Enterprises thinks is fair. And also, they will want him to exit the building. I don't think they will want him to stay around in an, in an active capacity because they will want to move on. And, and I don't think it's much of a secret that things have been difficult recently, that, that it is quite tense, that the negotiations have become pretty urgent. And if it does become their club, I think they will want it to be their club, you know, to, to be organised as, as, as they see fit. But it will, it will come down to money. I mean, there's no getting away from the fact that what Radrazani would have earned for Leeds in the Premier League is not what he, he would earn for Le- um, by selling Leeds in, in the EFL. There's a big difference there. And I suppose no football supporter is going to want to hear it put like this, but it co- it comes down to cold, hard brass tacks, doesn't it? It is business mm. for these people. It, it is. And how it's going to work out, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I'm absolutely of the attitude that a transition has got to be the, the best idea here. I mean, it just seems like a refresh and a reset and a you know, a bit of a new start is exactly what Leeds need. And my gut feeling is that in the circumstances if Leeds do go down, it'll have to be on Radrazani's mind that, that his time here is is potentially up. But I still wouldn't like to call it particularly at this stage. So, I mean, the financial difference is going to be something in the region of 210 million for his 56% if we stay up versus about 84 million if we go down based on figures that are in the round. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. You would be talking about a club in the Premier League valued at four to £500 million, something like that, club in the EFL valued at closer to £150 million. Yeah, it's a big difference. Um, and, and you can see why. I mean, clubs tend to be valued on multiples of revenue, among other things, but that's always a, a big influential factor. Leeds' last turnover was £190 million um, for the 21-22 year. It is not going to be £190 million in the EFL. Um, the income drops very, very sharply. Um, but you do get your parachute payments. The other side to this is that anybody coming in, if it is 49ers Enterprises, needs to then probably chuck a bit of money at it in terms of trying to get out of the championship, quick, smart. And you would imagine you w- you'd want to do that first year, but maybe allow for up to three because that's where the parachute payments taper off, don't they? They get quite low in year three. Um, so is, I is think... It, is it 50, it's, sorry, it's 55%, isn't it, of central distributions? That's then, correct. Then Which at the moment is about 44, 45 million pounds. Then yeah. it drops to 45% and is it 25%? Yeah, it's 25 or 20 Somewhere, um, yeah. in, in the last, in year three. And that's um, a percentage of the central distributions that everyone gets for TV money. Not for TV appearances, but the basic... That's correct. Of, yeah, so yeah. The, the central payment that every club in the Premier League gets each year, and I think for Leeds it was 90 million pounds plus this year, Year one down in the championship, you get 45%, uh, sorry, 55%, which works out at about £40 million, pounds, £45 million. Pounds. Uh, so what you need to do to get promoted is, aside from obviously sign the right people, recruit the right people, um, coaches and, and players, you need to use the parachute payments, you need to use income from the sale of players, you need to use shareholder investment as well, and you need to hope to high heaven that it works. Assuming we do go down... When you now consider from this position from today, how do you consider next season as you look at it? What does it look like to you right now? I have no idea. I don't know because there's going to be such a churn of players. I think you'll see the departures in double figures if they if they are relegated. Who's the head coach going to be? I, I think I think if 49ers Enterprises get in the door, I think they'd be very keen or very tempted to, to land somebody like Brendan Rodgers if they can. 
director of football wise two of the names that have been mentioned so far Stuart Webber at Norwich and Kieran Scott up at Middlesbrough which isn't to say it'll be either of them but those are two who've, who've been discussed until you know who is coming in and who it's going to be uh, which players they're going after as well what sort of team they're going to build it's very very difficult to say as with Burnley there's the potential for next season to be very good but quite clearly the potential for it to go wrong as well um, it doesn't take at Leeds well I mean, <laughs> <laughs> But but even in the championship generally, it doesn't take much to um, misju- misjudge that league at all, does it? We're in completely uncharted territory, I think, here, because yeah. we've we've obviously been down before, but it was with a financial collapse. We, we knew we were going down and, and everything was going wrong, but the problems were ongoing really right to the point of Rajasani coming in. There seemed to be a hangover from the Bates era. So we had, yeah. all, we had all those years and all those years in the championship complaining that we couldn't compete with it because we didn't have parachute payments and other people did. So maybe it's not that difficult to get out of it anymore. Yeah. But it somehow doesn't feel like the world is that good to us. No, but it's only as good as you make it, isn't it? And you look back at the example of Bielsa, where you say, let's be as ambitious as we can and put in an elite coach who has, for some reason, agreed to drop down to the championship and come and do this. You know, it, it can double, be done. Double time Allardyce dropped down a division. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it can be done, can't it? If you have the right ambition and, and backed up, I guess, with with ability. And I guess that's where you've got to get the director of football right. I mean, I, w- I would urge anybody, by the way, to read Stuart Webber's interview on The Athletic that's been published in the last couple of weeks where he's ruffled a few feathers, safe, yes. to, safe to say. Yes, particularly with his comments about women's football, which um, he kind of said he, he wasn't interested in it, didn't particularly... Didn't, I don't know whether he was saying he didn't particularly like it, but he was saying didn't wasn't interested in it, which, you know, People are entitled to take a view on this in the same way as my kids don't like football. My wife pretty much despises it, although I think that's less and less to do with football than it has to do with my job. But I can't say to them, no, no, you, you know, you've got to be interested in this. And the same applies to, to women's football. I think it's fine. And I don't know what his kind of motivation for that is. I think it's fine if it just doesn't float your boat. I think if you don't like it because it's women's football or it's women who are playing, then you've obviously got an issue and you need to, to get a grip of yourself. But obviously if you're at a club that has a women's team, you know... So you remit, it, isn't it? It's a rather choice thing to, to say. And yeah, I, I did I did read some of that and, and find it find it kind of quite peculiar. And as I say, I, I don't know... I don't know which way they, they're going to go with this. I, I wonder how much they even... I mean, in, in amongst the, the negotiations of trying to actually make the club yours, how much time do you have to devote to the, you know, the nuts and bolts of your football business and the, the big decisions that that need to be made. This is why I think there's going to have to be some serious urgency with this, After assuming things don't move before the weekend, after the weekend, because they cannot afford to get to the end of June and still be wrangling about this stuff and, and still be trying to work out which way it's going. I think, aside from anything else, I think the crowd deserve some clarity about this, partly because it's been a shambles of a season and it's been two really bad years, partly because the 49ers have been in the building since 2018 and you really feel like this is the point at which everybody should be cutting to the chase about it. it. It only seems right. In terms of the planning for next year, given Ottawa's gone, Radrazani is titting about in uh, in Genoa, <laughs> is there anyone at the club kind of doing things for next season? Because it feels, they, like, they, it feels like someone should be. They will be planning, although to what extent that what that looks like, I, I really can't say. It doesn't stop the absence of a director of football. It, it stops you having an overall plan and it stops you being to use that kind of awful phrase, being totally aligned, because the way in which you're aligned depends on who's in the job and how they see things and, and what their sort of philosophy is. 
it doesn't stop you interacting with agents. It doesn't stop you interacting with other people in the game. It doesn't stop you having ideas about what you might like to do. But the crucial thing in a major summer is always to get these things done. You, well, you need to know who you're recruiting for for a start, don't you? Who you're recruiting for. And you only do that by knowing for sure who it is that you're going to appoint. And, and in a lot of circumstances, players want to know who they're going to be playing for too. You know, it's very hard to engage or court a talented, capable footballer when you're saying, we haven't got a head coach, we haven't got a director of football, but it will get sorted a little bit further down the line. Because let's face it, if you're using the last two years as evidence that you know what you're doing and that there's going to be a, a good plan in place, it's not going to, um, not going to help, is it? Doesn't it feel like a bit of a cop-out to you that the, the very players who take you down get to have transfer clauses activated where they get to buzz off to other Premier League teams or somewhere in Europe and just carry on as if they haven't been very naughty boys? I, mean, I guess I can live with it when they're getting the pay cut as part of the deal. If they, were, if they weren't getting a pay cut, I'd be more upset by it, I suppose. But you think, I suppose the, the idea of the pay cut plus the, the clause is, well, if you've got market value, by all means, go and get it. But if you're stuck here and no one's willing to pay... 12 million quid for you then suck it up and take half your money it's worth saying half the money is still a lot of money yeah I don't think I don't think anyone's having to um, turn the thermostat down as a result <laughs> of of dropping to championship wages but still I'd be disappointed if you had your thermostat on at this time of year anyway in Yorkshire well, I mean I mean across the year you know <laughs> <laughs> there, there are very in the few, pool <laughs> very few people in football more powerful than footballers certainly in a contractual sense and when you go for really or go for try to sign what you think are good footballers or who you think are really good footballers, you quite often have to make concessions to get the deals over the line. If if they think that you're dead set on signing them, if they think that they've got a high market value or are, are very sought after, then if they say I want a relegation clause in the event that we go down or anything like that, quite often you have to you have to concede ground on that and say say yes. In the same way as players don't generally get sacked and you know, players get paid regardless of what's going on unless they're at clubs that don't have the money to pay them it is quite heavily on on their terms so yeah I mean what, what you will see is this summer certain players who've been right in the thick of a really poor season at Leeds get decent moves you know go off elsewhere and just carry on but then again it's always been like that hasn't it yeah, I mean, Rodrigo's been linked to uh, to Villa this week, hasn't he? Um, yeah. As a, as a case in point. Yeah, and, and the, the kind of ludicrous thing with Rodrigo is that he's had by far his best season in the year when Leeds have been at their worst and has looked, I think, has looked capable this season. He's actually looked like he can do it in the Premier League. And again, if he was to go this summer, you'll be forever left with the question of, was he just all round the wrong signing or actually could he have been used differently? Was he the right player to go after but the right player at the wrong time? All that sort of stuff. It's kind of strange but he alone I think has had a... I think Tyler Adams has been decent enough but um, I think Rodrigo alone stands out as being someone who's performed pretty well right the way through. And yet knowing his his age and his uh, the fact that he's had a, a mixed time at Leeds. What is he, 32 now? He's on astronomical wages. He's on one of the biggest in the, in the squad I think, isn't he? Yeah that you can't help but look at this and go, wow, it's probably an opportunity for us to to get him off the books now. Well, it certainly makes sense, I, I think, if Leeds go down for him to move on, yeah. There are a few like that. I mean, there's and there's a certain number of players that I'm sure fans would love to drive to the door kind of thing. And there, there are others that will go. Like you said, the defence is one where I, th- I there's none of that defence where I go, oh, please can we keep him? Maybe Max Ferber because he's new and he looks halfway capable. But the rest of me kind of go, well. It's, mm-hmm. all, it's all over the place though, isn't it? You've got 
Christensen at centre-back, even though he's a right-back. You had Strike at left-back at West Ham, even though he's a centre-back. You've got Robin Koch in midfield, even though he's a central defender. It's not a coherent unit. And if there's major change coming to the team, then it's got to be for the best. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Well, it's rare that we get to do breaking news on the on the podcast, especially as it comes out some hours after we've recorded it. But hey, let's lean into this anyway, because you may have seen, if you've been on Twitter, that so Mo Ibrahim is a guy who works with Demarzio, isn't he? Gianluca Demarzio, who does a lot of breaking transfer news. And he, he published what he claimed to be an interview with Victor Orta on Thursday night here in the UK. And today, Friday, late morning, there's been something of a backpedal. Who wants to read it? I will do. Go yeah, on, why not? Ari Orter interview. I published an article about a small talk with former Leeds director Victor Orter. It turns out that the person I spoke to wasn't <laughs> actually Victor, and it was someone pretending to be him. The website the interview was published on had no responsibility as to what happened. Things like this aren't good, of course, and I'm aware of that. It's not something I've done on purpose and really apologise for. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Do we know for certain if it was the real Victor Orter who signed Jorginho Ruta? <laughs> Do you think that's what happened? Some, <laughs> Do you think he got this far? Else, then a doppelganger. Someone um, signed it off at Leeds accounts. <laughs> but what, that, was, that wasn't me, I was at home. What, what we do need to know is who he was speaking to. Who was pretending to be Victor Orta? Yeah. No comment. Was it Michael? I've got to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Should we hear your best Victor Orta? Or? Let's, let's not. not no. I mean, I, I did think it was, given it's now fake, it's fairly tame, wasn't it? Yeah, if I was going to fake an interview, I'd do. I'd be. I'd have been a lot more outlandish. Yeah, I was going to say. I kind of read it. I went. That's all quite reasonable. <laughs> I'd have been calling out people left, right, and centre, and talking about punch-ups and all sorts. But yeah. you could you could pretend to be Ken Bates. That, that is a definite option. Have you ever been spoofed in an interview, Phil, or like you've spoken to the wrong person or anything like that? <sighs> no, I don't think so. Feels like a challenge. The, there must there must have been. I've never done anything like you know that taxi driver who turned up on. BBC News was asked about the, the collapse in oil prices or something like that in the Middle East that did his best for, for a short while. I don't think so. Occasionally you phone the wrong person or the number you're dialing isn't right. When Pete Lorimer died, I phoned around lots of goalkeepers who played against him, so Alex Stepney and, um, and Pat Jennings. Somebody gave me Pat Jennings' mobile number, which I phoned, and when I rang, I said, is that, is that Pat? Which guy on the end said yes yeah. <laughs> uh, sort of explained what, what I was doing and it became apparent that no it wasn't after a while so after about three or four minutes this guy was just like I'm not really sure about this and I don't really understand and, and just hung up and and so I thought right okay I, that probably isn't him so I then dialed Pat Jennings landline and lo and behold that was actually him and it's quite clear that it was him because he actually knew who Peter Lorimer was and was able to to answer questions but no I don't think I've ever had anything anything quite like that. 
Strange old business, eh? Strange yeah. old, old business. Good way to finish the season, isn't it? Yeah, it's all very on brand, isn't it? Yeah. For, uh, yeah. for Legion Heights, to be, to be perfectly honest. And uh, we should turn our attention to Spurs. It's the final match preview of the uh, of the season. Yes. I mean, can we avoid all the, the bigger picture stuff and actually look at the game itself or is it it's all just it's meaningless though isn't it yeah, without the bigger picture it's just a, it's an end it's in a friendly essentially if you take all the um, just like it was at West Ham <laughs> well yeah there, there are going to be quite a few final appearances in this one aren't there um, there'll be a lot of players who I don't think will be seen in white again Allardyce was saying after the West Ham game we might have to completely change the system I'm not quite sure what that entails he's never really been a sort of false nine man has he? Um, Jorginho Ruta at centre-back. Jorginho Ruta up front. I mean, again, at West Ham when he was asked about Rodrigo and the fact that he played for half an hour injured and saying, I didn't have a centre-forward on the bench makes it clear that he just doesn't think that Ruta is that and has shown absolutely no inclination so far to to give him a run. Does he, does he just throw caution to the wind? To be brutally honest, does he feel deep down like it's all done? You know, does, he's not going to say that. We'll go and see him in a few years' time, and I don't doubt that he'll. You know, the message he'll try and try and give to the players is: look, have a go, do your best, see what happens, and you just never know. Going into this press conference, and it's interesting because this will come out after the press, or I dare say, what what do you even ask him under these circumstances? The thing I'm most interested in asking him about is Luke Ailing's comments after the game about fitness of the players, and Ailing kind of saying that he didn't think they had the, the stamina, or the conditioning, or whatever else it was to go again and to sustain, sustain in the second half what they did in the first half. And I would like to, to know what Allardyce's view is on the general fitness levels um, of, the, of the players that, that he's got. Obviously, we need to find out about Bamford, about Rodrigo, who else is fit, who isn't, um, how, it's, how it's all shaping up. But there isn't really a lot there to mix it up with. Is there? That is one of the problems. Ask him a question from me. Say, what, oh, are you yeah, gonna, what, what are you going to do with your half a million quid? <laughs> well... It, I did say in my report after West Ham that that fiver that he found on the touchline um, in the in the dugout in the first half is probably going to be the sum of his survival bonus at this rate. I mean, you, you'd need to sort of forget about Allardyce a little bit because in no way is any of this down to him. Like, it's not his fault. He, he, he will go, you would assume, after this game. Obviously, he could go with, you know, a little bit of a cult following if they do stay up. It'd be a properly remarkable day. But if they go down... You assume that he just drifts off and has his summer and it's not his his problem. And why should it be? You know, it's I, I get that he's here and he's been paid for it and, and everything else. But if if this is this is proven one thing, it's that if you are having to roll the dice with four games to go, then you're probably already done. And it was essentially three games, wasn't it? Yeah. Because Man City away is not a game you get anything from. Yeah, and, and none of these fixtures involve sides who okay, like West Ham have been kinda of in the relegation picture, but they they're out of it at this stage. And I do think that if they hadn't had the pressure of Europe on them as well, they'd probably been a little bit further up the table. None of this involves out-and-out relegation candidates that you could say Southampton coming to Ellen Road on Sunday. Totally different, totally different. And even though I thought West Ham might not be game for it last weekend and I sort of feel the same about Spurs, you still look at Leeds' defence and you still think about Kane and Son and others going at it and you suspect that they will score goals. Who's going to be there in the director's box? I think is what a lot of people are wondering. Well, Kinnear will be there, pretty sure. Radrazani, I mean, he's spent all week in Italy and he was at the Newcastle game. Wish, wish him. I could. You've seen him? What? <laughs> Just <laughs> being be in Italy. We're we trying to buy Sampdoria. <laughs> um, there was a bit of chat around Ellen Road, actually, during the Newcastle game about whether or not that might be the last time he was there. I haven't been told whether 
he is definitely going at the weekend. I'm not entirely sure. It goes without saying that if it doesn't work out for Leeds, it's got the potential to get pretty toxic and it'll be a bit flammable the whole occasion. So one to one to wait and see, really. Do you think? I wonder if maybe because this has almost happened not by stealth, but just it's crept up by degrees, hasn't it? So losing at West Ham and then the Leicester result nudged them in front of us. So we're relying on three results. Whether the acceptance has kind of just dripped through and people are a little bit more apathetic about it. I mean, because there should be righteous anger inside Ellen Road because it's been a shambles for the last year. But has it taken a bit of the heat out of it the way that it's unfolded? Two things that I've noticed in the past month. One was when the third goal went in on... Sunday at West Ham the away end emptied I mean it really did just emptied and that's no criticism of anybody I totally understand why people would do that and feel like that but it wasn't you know there was a bit of dissent towards the players at the final whistle but a lot of people had just gone but even more than that and I must have mentioned this previously but when Vardy scored that offside goal against Leeds that looked like it had put Leicester 2-1 up I can't remember exactly but there must have been about what 8 minutes left plus injury time so the definite scope for Leeds to fight back, get something out of it, equalise. When that went in, about half of the people sat in front of the press box, got up and just went to leave. And then the flag went up and people looked around and thought, oh, well, in that case, might as well sit back down and stay. But I, I don't think I've ever seen that before. Of of everybody, even though the game would have still been in the balance, people just saying, oh, I've had enough of this. Yeah, I think it's because it's, it's felt like it's been coming for so yeah, long. I, I do think that's what it is. There's yeah. been a real creeping inevitability about this relegation and you almost think if we survived this year it would probably been the same next year as well because without some major transformation this is what's going to happen because we're disjointed and we're changing managers several times a season and yeah. we're chopping and changing the lineup. and we've got midfielders in defence and fullbacks in central defence and injured strikers trying to play a full season. The whole thing has just felt it's felt like it's been hanging on by a thread for a long while. So I think when it does go, everyone's reaction is, oh, there it goes. And does it feel like more of an opportunity to clear the decks, which is kind of what I was getting at a little bit earlier on, like the, the, desire, the desire to draw drive some of the players to the door yourself, just go off you go then. You know, the chance just oh. to shed some of the rebuilding that's been done there's by Orta and, and start again. There's a general lack of affinity, I think, between mm. the crowd and the players, the crowd and the dugout for obvious reasons. You know, 10 people in it and the crowd and the board more so than ever. And I think because that affinity isn't there, apathy does tend to, to set in. I think one of the one of the hallmarks of Bielsa's last year, which was incredibly difficult, and you know, it was it was kind of when you look back at it, it did feel a bit like a relegation fight from the start. It took a while to kind of realise that that was the way it was going. But it, it never never got going. But the crowd stuck with that right the way through. And that was because there was really strong relationship between him and the support. And, you know, there was a, a strong sense of feeling for a lot of the players as well. And I do think that has faded. I think two really hard years have, have had a big impact on that. And that's probably what, what I saw in the, you know, the, the kind of short-lived exodus after the Vardy goal was people's attitude of, well, I've had enough of this. I think I tweeted... Um... It's the gif of, uh, you know, the, the the screenshot from Austin Powers of the uh, security guy getting run over by the, yes. uh, the steamroller and it takes like forever and he's going, no! And that's the, the joke is that he's there for ages and ages. That's this season again, isn't it? It's just the slow waiting for the uh, the steamroller. Well, people have been 
tweet me all week or various people have with um, the gift from the Simpsons of them saying stop it stop it he's already dead, dead. <laughs> like, no, it's um, also kind of how it feels it's such a like sad demoralising end really to to a project that kind of had no it didn't have it all in 2021 but it was in such a good place do, uh, do you think was. this is the official kind of end cut off point of the Bielsa era this is the, the legacy the wake the long tail of it um, it's hard to answer that really because so much has moved on from that point the one thing I would say is that whatever the reasons for um, sacking Bielsa and whether it was merited or not nothing has worked since then nothing they've done since then has worked I know they stayed up last season but I'm still not convinced that that was any more by design than, than luck really the attempts to rebuild the squad the attempts to reframe the coaching staff over and over again none of it none of it's happened none of yeah. it's paid off so no I mean I, I think I, I think be, the Bielsa legacy will always be there with people who will remember what went on in the best of his years but it's shifted now to a, a position where it's the, the problems are related to completely different things you know it's still some of the things that were there when he he was um, he was head coach, but I look at this more and more, write about it more and more, and fundamentally, it now comes down to ownership. I think. Yeah, I was thinking specifically in terms of the fact that we are able to say with a bit of hindsight now, three years down the line, that the promotion team that came up, we're still relying on it, aren't we? In a yeah. very big way, in terms of Forshaw, Bamford's being one of the central figures of it all. So the failure to build on top of that side, I think, and improve it over the last three years is possibly what I mean. Like it yeah. was it was moving from that phase, the Bielsa phase, onto the next phase, and it's just kind of it's just been aimless ultimately, hasn't it? I, I think if you if you're brutally honest about this and, and when everybody reflects on it, you'd say that they were too sold on their own ideas and a lot of those ideas have not worked, have not paid off. And that's how you get judged in football, isn't it? If um if what you do is a success, then people people laud you for it. If it's not then they criticize you for it. And that's exactly where leads are. I think you look at the reaction to Click leaving this year and then you compare that to the reaction of people like who've, who've played a lot of games this year, people like If Rocker or Aronson or someone like that was to leave in summer, complete shrugging of shoulders, indifference to it. And it feels like that is the connection that has completely disappeared, that people were leaving who maybe maybe in some respects you were like, okay, I can see why Berardi's leaving, I can see why Alejowski's leaving because we need a better left-back, still haven't got one. As it as it turns out, but you know there were <laughs> there was a feeling, I suppose, that like Pablo's too old, but there was real mourning for these players and and what they represented and because they achieved something exactly. Whereas now you can look at this squad and even even some people who were around then, like when, Mel- when Melia leaves this summer, there'll probably be a bit of a ah, it's a shame, but yeah, probably time for everyone. Like it, it's it's soured it all, <laughs> I think, to a large extent. Yeah, totally. I yeah. think the, I think the regret with Melia will be that there is a quality keeper there. I think that you could develop into a very good and dependable, consistent goalkeeper. And Leeds just haven't done that. And, you know, partly that would have to be down to him. It's not as if players are ever blameless in this. But say it again, that many goals are flying past you and they can't all be your fault. What does it do to you, especially at that age? Yeah, I think our mate Moscow White made a very good point. I hadn't really thought about this until I saw him write it, but they were building a club, whichever model you want to say they were following at one time or another, where selling players was kind of one of the cornerstones. You'd sell a big asset every every summer. And as you say there with Melier, the point is, who are they actually using to make the players better? We had Bielsa. Bielsa was a ready-made example of that. But then the coaches that have followed and the short-term appointment of them all, who's going to make a player better that you can sell them? If there's no well, one coaching you... your players properly, then you can't have them increase in value. Can you? They kind of took the, their eye off the ball with that part of the plan. 
it's not even just the coaching, it's the performance of individual players as well. You can have a long-term strategy and aim to get resale value and, and pull money in. But you still have to, as I've said loads of times in the past few weeks, you still have to deal with the here and now and the short term and you have to make sure that the short term, however unfashionable it can be, is really sustainable. And and don't forget that the players that Leicester, as an example, and I know it's it's gone sour for them, but if Leicester drop out of the Premier League, they drop out with a Premier League title and an FA Cup. So you can say that in the grand scheme, and I spoke to a few Leicester fans down um, at the KP when I went down to the Everton game, and it's not that they want to get relegated, it's not that they'll be accepting of it, but they did say you can be a bit philosophical about the fact that we've had we've had great times. But they were selling and taking money from players who'd made a massive, massive impact. So Mares goes to Manchester City, but Mares has won you the title. And I know a, a lot is said about Harry Maguire's value, but he was, you know, he was part of a, a good Leicester team. He was. Um that's that's how it's been for them. Whereas at Leeds, there seems to be this sort of fanciful view of in X number of years' time, this player's either going to be a sensation or we're going to make a killing out of him. Great. But in the meantime, what's going to happen? In the meantime, how's that going to be handled? How's that going to be managed? And if, in the meantime, you don't have a squad who can actually stay up, then what happens is you retreat into a position where you're exposed to the market, where the players who you might have been saying, you know, if you're looking at Melier saying, one day further down the line he's going to be a 50, 60, 70 million pound goalkeeper and we're going to cash in on him well you ain't anymore and the same goes for Nonto you know look at Nonto and say he's a player who we could now ask 30, 40 million pounds for well can you do that in the championship you know are you actually and if you don't what was the point? Yeah yeah. it's as as Moscow puts it planning for a future that never arrives um, well the future does start doesn't it on, um, on Monday I guess is the first day of, of next season albeit a bank holiday Let's just hope that we go into it with something of a plan. I just feel like something needs to give over the next week. Yes. Immediately in the wake of what is presumed to be a relegation. I think as well, they need to start transmitting some messages about what's coming, you know, what what the plan is, where it's going. Everybody is very much in the dark, not least the, the support. And everybody can see how much needs to be done. And they're not going to get any of that done by stagnating. They're going to have to, like you say, going to have to be quick decisions made now. Gonna have to dash anyway because Victor Ross is just on the phone. It's just uh, my phone's just lit up. So uh, we'll bid you farewell. We'll be back on the, the Phil Hay Monday Club. You and I then for the the final post season fifteen minute analysis. Phil um, over on the Square Ball feed. Speak to you then. Thank you. The Phil Hay Show.